The text today is from the 85th Psalm. I want to preach under the title of The Heart Cry for a Revival or for Renewal. In your order of service this morning, you received one of these little commitment sheets, commitment card, or whatever you want to call that. We're going to ask you at the end of the service to consider what God's will for you concerning the commitment that that's asking of you. And at the, at the door, uh, there are places for you to put that commitment sheet. And we're going to ask for a public decision concerning a commitment to evangelism and to the winning of the lost, to pray for the lost, to pray for revival in our church, in our world. And the 85th Psalm is what that's about. O Lord, Thou didst show favor to Thy land. Thou didst restore the captivity of Jacob. Thou didst forgive the iniquity of Thy people. Thou didst cover all their sin. Thou didst withdraw all Thy fury. Thou didst turn away from Thy burning anger. Revive us or restore us, turn us, O God of our salvation. And cause thine indignation toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou prolong thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us? Wilt thou not thyself revive us again? That thy people may rejoice in thee. Show us thy loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Psalm 85 is a cry for revival, for renewal among God's people. The psalmist recognized a deep need for God in the land. It probably was written after Israel had been released from Babylonian captivity. But in spite of that release and the favor of God upon Israel, they were experiencing to some degree a measure of God's disfavor. The psalmist recognizes that. The psalm is divided into three sections. In the first section, he recognizes the disfavor of God upon his people, and he acknowledges that. And then he comes to the heart, to the main point of this psalm, and he cries out for God to revive his land, to bring about renewal in his time. 
If I were to ask you this morning, do you have a longing for God to renew your life, to revive the church? I imagine that everybody here would answer in the affirmative. Yes, we would like to see revival in our time. But if I were to ask you today, do you now have a deep, inner, passionate longing in your heart for God to send revival upon his people and upon his church. How many of you could honestly answer yes? I recently read a statement by, by Roy Hessen concerning England. He said, the hope for revival in England has died in the long waiting. I hope that hasn't happened here. I trust that the hope that God will step from the triforium and rend his place with his presence has not died in the long waiting. I trust that somehow, to even today, God is stirring up inside of all of us a deep, inner, passionate longing to see God again at work in his people. Now this psalm this morning is about that inner longing and there are three major aspects that I want to emphasize. The first is that which is necessary before renewal or revival can come, and that is there must be among us a passionate desire for it. Verse 6 is nothing more or nothing less than one's passionate desire for revival, for renewal, first in his own life and in the life of his people. It was like a hunger there. It was like a fire. There was this passionate desire. And this passionate desire involved a couple of things. It involved a sense of remembrance. He said, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity, referring to the release from Babylonian captivity. He's just looking back and remembering. And he's contrasting the presence with what he remembers from the past. To say, revive us again, is to suggest that there was a time in Israel's life when she lived in the spirit of renewal and spiritual consciousness of God. Some of you can remember that. I grew up in an evangelical church. Our church was a, was a small evangelical church in a small West Texas town, but when I was about in middle school, our church experienced two years of perpetual evangelism and revival. It was an awesome thing. I can remember going to church as a young boy with a, with a sense of trembling or awe. It's, I'm, 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 it's, I'm telling you literally how I felt as a young boy, and I wasn't that uh, serious about spiritual things. But just to come into the church was to sense an awesome awareness that God was there. And we'd have services that would last past noon. Nobody cared then. There were so many people coming forward, we'd have them stand at the front. They'd fill down the aisles at the sides of the auditorium. And Ray Summers came one sun, summer to preach a revival, a weeks-long revival in my little hometown, and 60 adult people were saved, adults. Many of those men were friends and acquaintances of my parents, and I'll never get over the impression of that two years that I lived in a church that was experiencing perpetual revival. I can, I can remember that in my own life. When it was springtime, as Kathy has sung about, 
when I have felt the joy and the excitement of God's Word and the joy and the excitement of preaching would come to church and sins and expectancy here and God among us, you and I can remember those times of the past. And when we remember them, it causes something inside of us to say, oh Lord, do it again. A part of the passionate plea, passionate desire is that remembrance of what it used to be like, what it once was, what it used to be. Not only was there a sense of remembrance in the psalmist, but there was a sense of realization. He realized a couple of things. One thing he realized was the sin of his own people. Now it is true that God favors Israel and brought her back from Babylonian captivity, but he also realized the sin of his people and so he stood there unashamedly to call on them to repent. He said, turn us, O God, of our salvation. We need to turn. There's some of us who have been going the wrong way. We need to repent. We need to give up our sin. We need to surrender to God. Some of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer's writings. In one of his books, he said, one of the major steps we need to take is to demonstrate to young people that there is nothing stupid about righteousness. And in order to do that, he said, we're going to have to stop negotiating with our sin. I challenge you this morning to stop negotiating with sin, to stop trying to fit it in to your particular system of life. And the sin that that he's calling on us to repent is in verse 2 and it's the word iniquity. It is that kind of evil that's in the heart of man that causes him to explain away the demands of God so he can continue to sin. Amen to that. It's what Tozer was talking about when he talks about stop negotiating with sin. Stop, Stop explaining away the demands of God and surrender to him. About a week ago I stood at the archeological find of the ancient city of Jericho, that archeological dig. And down below us we saw the great walls of Jericho that came tumbling down when Joshua came into the land of Canaan. And you know that Jericho was the supreme city of the Canaanite nation and Joshua brought his people in to Canaan and took the city without firing a shot, without a casualty. All he did was shout on the seventh day and blow the trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. And God had said, there is a band list and the people of God were not to touch the things on the band list, the things that belong to God in the city of Jericho. Don't take these things, he said. The next battle was the battle of Ai, just a little wide spot in the road. Joshua's general said, don't even send the whole army. Two or three hundred men will be enough. And they were soundly defeated. And Joshua went before God and said, why have you brought us into this land to let us perish? And God said, there are things of the band list that some of the people, some of my people have kept for themselves, things on the band list. And then he made this statement. He said, I'll not be with you any longer until the things on the band list are put from among you. And so they found the man who had the things that God said he could not have in his life. And he put those out and they put him out and then God came in victory again. I submit to you, revival will never come to this church nor to any church 
until the people of God put away the things from their life that are on the banned list. Revival will never come to this church or to any church until God's people put away the things in their life that bring the disfavor of God. We need to repent. And there was not only the realization of the, of the sin of the people, there is in this psalm a realization of the anger of God. He said, will you cause your anger to cease? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Re refrain your righteous anger. Now the other side of God's nature this morning is a side that you and I often ignore. We resist, really, and that is the side of his wrath and his anger. J.I. Packer says that the wrath of God is just God's righteousness reacting to our unrighteousness. How can God react to our unrighteousness except with righteous anger? Somebody said he saw a bumper sticker not long ago. He said, the bumper sticker read, I just saw God today. I just talked to God today. And boy, is he mad. Uh, I've got a feeling this morning that there's some things about this church, about this pastor, about this church, about this people of God that brings about the anger of a holy God. How can he respond to our unrighteousness apart from his anger and his wrath? He cannot even look upon sin. Now what the psalmist recognized and realized was that God is displeased with his people. And unless man, unless his people repent, he'll live in that righteous wrath. Not only was there a sense of remembrance and realization, there's a sense of recognition in, the psalm, in this psalm. It's the recognition that revival shall never come unless God sends revival. Revival is the activity of God upon a nation, upon a church, upon a people. Skelvington Ward said, Revival is not an earthly concoction. It is a heavenly creation. It is not something that man accomplishes. Now, I know that's what we think. And so we get prepared for some kind of evangelistic emphasis and we invite the best preachers that can get the biggest crowds and we go through all these this program of preparing people and publicity, but the fact of the matter is, if revival comes, it'll be an act of God upon the people. Andrew Bonner was a, was a great preacher in the city of Glasgow. He pastored the Kelvin Grove Parish Church in Glasgow, and he resigned his pulpit and was moving away, and a young college student in in his church, decided he couldn't go to church there anymore because Andrew Bonner wasn't a preacher. He loved this man's preaching. And so he decided he'd just take his Bible and go out to the park and he'd worship by himself on Sunday. Andrew Bonner wasn't his pastor anymore. He'd just worship by himself. One morning he's sitting in the park and a lady came by pushing a baby carriage. Had a little baby inside the carriage. A little boy was about two or three toddler running alongside the carriage, kind of hanging on to it and trying to get in it, and just as little kids do. Just as they got right in front of this young man, the mother said, stop leaning on Andrew Bonner. 
The baby in the carriage was named Andrew. The Christian name of the little boy running alongside was named Bonner. Stop leaning on Andrew, comma, Bonner. And God took those words and drove them into the heart of that young, pre that young student and he went back to church realizing that he had been leaning on Andrew Bonner. Hear me now. Revival, renewal in your life is never going to happen until you stop leaning on the Andrew Bonners of your life. When we stop looking to man and look, start looking to God, revival comes. Evans Roberts was led of God, to, was used of God in the great Welsh revival of 1904. Thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God in one year in that revival. And the people came one night to hear Evans Roberts preach. They were there by the thousands and Evans Roberts sat up on the platform and wouldn't preach. He just sat there with his face buried in his hands. They sat there waiting for him to preach. About 30 minutes passed after the song service. Not a word was said. And the people kind of got agitated. They wanted somebody to say something. I believe this with a strong conviction that when this church in all of its unity and in oneness of accord comes to this place on Sunday morning to see the master and not a man is the day revival comes. When we stop thinking about who is here and who is not here and when we stop looking to man to help us out of our misery and depending on man to deliver us from our problems and we turn to God as our only hope and solution and salvation is the time God is free to move upon us in revival. There is this passionate desire for that to happen. There is a second major aspect of this psalm. That is the immediate demand Horatio Bonner, Andrew, Andrew Bonner's brother once said, it's easier to speak about revival than it is to set about revival. Now what are the demands that God is making upon a people before he can bring about renewal? What's going to have to happen before God can bring back the springtime and remove the coldness and the deadness of the winter of our own spiritual pilgrimage. What's gonna have to happen before God can come in revival? I think there are five things. There must first of all be conviction. Psalm 85 is nothing more and nothing less than a man's deep conviction. There's nothing shallow about this man's spiritual life. There's nothing shallow about his commitment. There is a deep conviction that they need God and that men are lost without him and separated from him and that men live and abide under his wrath apart from him. That's the deep conviction this psalmist felt. Do you have it? Are you gripped with a conviction this morning that you cannot live without God? That men and women, young people, college students, high school students are lost without him? Do you have that deep grip of conviction that of God's presence and God's power? Stephen Alford went to where Billy Graham was preaching a revival, a crusade in New York City. Went to his hotel where he stayed. 
Stephen Alford said that night, they went up after the crusade, they went up to the top floor of that huge hotel in New York City, had one of those observation decks or towers there. He said they were standing there looking out over the lights of the city and they were just chatting and talking and he said after a while I was conscious that Mr. Graham was not involved in the dialogue any longer. He's quiet. He said I turned to, to see Dr. Graham standing there with tears streaming down his face and he said he looked at me and said Stephen each one of those lights out there represents hundreds of people who are lost without Christ. How long has it been since you stood at the gate of your own city block and looked down the street of that block and realized that every one of those homes, each one of those homes represents people who are lost without Christ? Has it moved your heart at all? There's a conviction here. There's a second demand, I think, before revival can come, and that is confession. Psalm 85 is nothing more, nothing less than a man's confession. He's saying to God, this is what we are. This is the way we are. This is what we're like. I know what it seems, but this is the way we really are. I know what people think of us, but this is what I'm really like. It's the willingness of a man to strip aside the veneer of his life and say, God, this is the way I am. I confess it. I think revival comes when we are willing to stand before God and before men and say, this is a pretense. I'm really like this and I'm sorry for it. This is the way I am. Some of you can remember the revival that occurred not too far from here in the next county. I understand that that revival began in that little church up there one Sunday morning when the preacher stood in the pulpit to say, this is the way I really am. Had the courage to do it. The Welch revival began in 1904 with Evans Roberts preaching. You can imagine how the Keswick Convention, how it must have been that same year. Now the Keswick Convention in Great Britain is like a national evangelism conference. And so with the great Welsh revival taking place, when they met for the Keswick Convention, it was an exciting thing. 1904. 1905, it was the same. 1906, what a meeting, the Keswick Convention. 1907, it was dead and flat and empty and cold. And the moderator by the name of Greg stood up to close out the Keswick Convention. This is what he said. He said, I'm, I'm distressed. God has not been among us. Every year we've met, we've sensed God in this tent, had a great big revival tent. He said, something's wrong. Somebody's quenching the Spirit of God. About that time, there was a noise, a disturbance toward the back. The man walked down the aisle. He identified himself. He said, I'm Evans Roberts the man God had used in the Welch revival. He said, I want to tell you, I'm what's wrong with this meeting. He said, I have quenched the spirit of God. I'm the clog in the machinery. I have so much pride and jealousy. I've sinned and I'm sorry. And, there, and confession came and revival swept through that tent, said the historian. 
And Greg said that night I could see lights on in every hotel and every guest house as people wrote letters of confession and asking people to forgive them they'd wronged. And he said the next morning at the post office you couldn't buy a money order because people had bought them out, sending them back to places where they had been dishonest, cheated folks. Revival had come with confession. Perhaps there's one here this morning who is the clog in the machinery who might could come down this aisle if he had the courage and the grace, perhaps over here, and who could say, I know what people are thinking of me. I know my reputation, but this is the way I am. I've sinned. Confession. There is a need for humility. 85th Psalm is nothing more, nothing less than a man admitting his need to God, of God. If you ever go to Glasgow, Scotland, I'm told you need to visit St. Peter's Church. St. Peter's Church was the great church that uh, Bonner preached. Not, not Bonner, McChaney, Robert McChaney. Robert McChaney was a scholarly man. He could converse with the European Jews in Hebrew. He was a scholar in the Greek classics. In order to keep people from knowing about his personal life, he kept his diary in Latin. He composed two songs that are now in the hymnals. He was an artist. When McChaney died, a visitor came to the St. Peter's Church and an old sexton took him through the church, took him into the library. Some of McChaney's books were still there. He said, sit down here at this library table. And the man did. He said, now put your, put your elbows on the table. And the man did. He said, now put your face in your hands. And he did. And he said, now let the tears flow. That's what happens. That's what happened to Brother McChaney. He brought him into the auditorium. He said, come up here in the pulpit. And he did. He said, now put your elbows, rest them on the pulpit like this. And the man did. He said, now lean toward the people, bury your face in your hands. And he did. He said, now let the tears flow. That's what happened on Sunday when Brother McChaney preached. Could it be that when men and women are willing to bury their faces in their hands and weep tears unashamedly, and admit their need of God, revival will come. Humility. There's the demand of intercession. I can just see this psalmist praying. I see him on his knees with his hands up like this, and I hear him crying, Oh Lord, send revival. Are we expecting, are we looking for revival apart from prayer? The least attended meeting in this church is the prayer meeting. There's a dearth of prayer. Call on the people to pray. It's the least attended meeting. There's no sobbing. There's no crying out to God in intercession. Martin Luther calls intercession the sweat of the soul. How many of you sweat any on how many have had your soul sweat for revival? John Knox said, "Give me Scotland or I die." George Whitfield said, "Give me souls or take my soul." Edwin Young in his little book, Bring Back the Revival, said the most promising step we can take with a view to encouraging revival is to make the prayer meeting the strongest gathering of the week. 
And Leonard Ravenhill said a prayer for revival. Prayer for revival is no sudden flight of fancy, no spiritual hobby, just as it is not possible for a man to take a flying leap and land on top of the Rockies, but arise there through through toil, patient toil, so it is with prayer for revival. Are we looking for revival apart from prayer? John Fletcher was the vicar of Matilay. John Fletcher slept five nights a week. The other two nights during the week he spent in prayer for his church. No wonder when Voltaire, the French atheist, was asked, have you ever seen anything that made you want to believe in God? He said, yes, go to the vicarage at Madeley where John Fletcher lives. There is one other demand, I think, that God makes on us before renewal can come. That's the demand of sincerity. Some of you may know that the word sincerity is a combination of two Latin words, without wax, without wax, it was, a, it was a word used by those who dealt in ancient porcelain. And when that porcelain was cracked, these folks would cover up the cracks with wax. It was a deceitful thing, dishonest thing. So when the porcelain dealers would hold up these vessels to the light and they saw there were no cracks covered with wax, they used the word sincerity. It was the genuine article. I ask you this morning, how about your life? Is it the genuine article? Is there so much fakery about it? Is it a sham? Is your life, the flaws of it and the failure of it, have you covered with the, the facade of your own hypocrisy? What is your life really like? When the great dealer of human life and spiritual renewal holds your life up to the light of his scrutiny and knowledge, what does he see there? Does he see the flaws covered with the insincerity of hypocrisy? Revival comes when men are sincere. When we lay aside the cloaks of our hypocrisy and get right with God. There's one other major aspect of this psalm. Take heart, it's almost over. That is the ultimate design. What happens when revival comes? What is the ultimate purpose of God in bringing renewal? Well, the text defines it clearly. First, the face of God is revealed. The glory of God is revealed. Someone asked Sidlow Baxter to define or explain what, his, what the revival was like in his church. He said, I can't explain it. All I know is that after revival came, God was everywhere in the atmosphere. Wouldn't you like that to happen? So that everywhere you go, on the streets of Durant, in the businesses of Durant, in the University of Durant, in the, in the high school, everywhere you go, folks are talking about God. He's everywhere in the atmosphere. The psalmist talks about the dew. It's what happens when all the conditions are met, when the environment is just right and the dew appears there. In the atmosphere, you just sense the presence of God. God's face, God's glory revealed. Secondly, the scripture says that truth and righteousness are revealed. Truth rises from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. What he's saying is that when revival comes, the whole community is changed. And there's a basic honesty among people. And there's a basic righteousness among people. When the Welch revival took place, they closed down the, the, the prisons, the jails, the sheriff went out of business. Everybody got saved. 
and the whole community just began to live in the light of righteousness. Everybody's word was his bond. They had no need for locks on the doors. That's what happens when God moves in upon a community. Everything changes. There's never been a revival that there's not been social reform. The abolition of slavery followed revival. The end of child labor was the direct result of revival. And before Whitfield and Wesley preached in England, men had 90-hour work weeks. And the result of their preaching, the 60-hour work week came into effect and the trade unions in their purest forms came to be. And the result of the flow of revival in the country has evolved into the Salvation Army and the YMCA movements and most educational and benevolent institutions are the product of revival. Every time there's revival, there is social reform. Now you and I can send our legislators over to Oklahoma City or to Washington and we can try to figure out all the answers. Let me tell you what the answer is. When God's people are revived and there is a spiritual awakening, the whole community and nation is changed. Third, there is joy experienced. He said, Wilt thou not revive us again that we may rejoice in thee? Aren't you, doesn't your heart long for the joy that God gives? The happiest days of my life are the days that I've been, I have experienced personal renewal and church-wide revival. I can get depressed and I can go into my office and I can get in God's word and I can get, begin to find out what's wrong in my life spiritually and I can start getting back with God and somehow the joy returns. Don't you pray today, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Don't you long to have it like it used to be. Don't you wish that you had the joy you had when you were saved. Revival ex effects the same kind of joy every day that you had the day you were saved. Fourth, when revival comes, souls are saved. Now there's a difference between revival and spiritual renewal, spiritual awakening. Revival is what happens among God's people. A spiritual awakening is what happens in the unbelieving world. And when revival comes to our hearts and to our church, the spinoff of that, the peripheral of that, periphery of that is that souls are saved. But revival coming to the church first, then people being saved second. The first year of the Welch revival, 100,000 people were saved from the unbelieving community. And if you'll read the history of that great revival, there were hundreds of thousands of people born into the kingdom of God because one small gathering of people no larger than this center section experienced revival. Recently, Tom Shaw, who is now on the staff of the Prairie Overcomer magazine, was preaching up in India, out in India, to a large gathering of people. And he said, I saw a group of people there sitting together who were obviously 
Indian, but were, did not have all the same face, facial and physical features of, of the majority of Indian people there. That is, the nation of India. And he said, after the, after the sermon, he said, I, I visited with some of them and found out that they were from the little country called Nagaland. And as we talked, he said, I found that there were about 25 of them. He said, each one of them had come to this conference. Each one of them had been saved, had been born again in a revival that was sweeping across the top part of the nation of India, uh, uh, an evangelical revival, believe it or not. And he said, as we fellowshiped in that little park place around a little brook, he said, I, I sense the joy and the enthusiasm and the love for God and the commitment these folks made from Nagaland. And he said, I prayed that night, do that, Lord, in my part and do that in my church. My prayer has been since I began preaching at 19 years of age. Lord, let me someday pastor a church that is experiencing New Testament renewal and revival. God, whatever it takes, I'm willing to pay the price for that to happen here. Can you say that? Now in a moment, you'll be leaving this place. You've come like every other Sunday to hear singing and to hear preaching. And many of us will leave just the same as we came. But I don't want you to have that, that privilege today to do that. I want you to leave better than you were when you came or worse. And if you hear a message that calls for renewal and revival and you make no commitment to that, I promise you, you'll leave worse than you were when you came. But if you make those kinds of decisions this morning that will effect renewal in your own life and in your home and in your school, in your town and in your church, you'll be better than when you came. And I press to you this decision, decide one way or the other. Now with your head bowed, I'd like for you to reach over into that art of service and take this little deal. On the left-hand side, it says what you're willing to do. I will pray for the lost by name. I will present the gospel of, as Christ leads I will invite unreached people to the evangelistic service. I'll enlist lost people for Sunday school. I'll participate in my church witness training process other than your name. On the right hand side, I'll pray for and share Christ with the following persons.
their names. I want you to take about two minutes to check that or fill it out while we pray, while we bow in the spirit of prayer. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to ask you to do now. This is the most important part of this service. We're going to stand. The choir's going to sing softly. I'm going to ask you to come and bring this commitment sheet and place it right here on the altar, on the ordinance table. You'll not have to say anything to anybody. Just in an act of your coming, you do that. After we've had a time for that, then we'll have prayer and we'll have our regular invitation. And the invitation will come after the time we make a commitment to this as a church. Would you stand? As the choir begins to sing, we invite you to come. Put it right here.